Hi, it's Holly here, and welcome to The Second Location, where I am continuing my discussion of the 1991 Austin Yogurt Shop murders. In the timeline, it's 1999, eight years after the murders, and the police are focusing on a group of young men that were teenagers at the time of the crime. With absolutely no evidence that connects these four guys to the murders, no DNA, no fingerprints, no eyewitnesses, nothing. Police need some confessions if they are ever going to get these guys behind bars. First, the police question Mike Scott. In over five days of being interrogated by the police, he eventually confesses to the murders. His statements are inconsistent and at times don't match up with the known facts from the crime scene. But this is ignored by the investigators. And once his incriminating statement was secured, four Texas police officers fly to West Virginia to question Rob Springsteen and they obtain another false confession. The police track Rob Springsteen down and he agrees to go to a local police station for questioning. Using the same opening tactic as they used with Mike Scott, they assure Rob that he is not in custody and not under arrest and that the investigators just want to clear up some inconsistencies. But let's get this straight. Four police officers didn't fly to West Virginia to clear up inconsistencies. Some alarm bells need to be going off here, but Rob seems oblivious. A few inconsistencies can be handled over a phone call, dude. A cross-country flight by four men wouldn't be necessary. But neither Mike nor Rob seem to understand the shit that they are in. There is a simplicity in the way they view what is going on. They know that they aren't guilty, so they just go ahead and answer the questions, saying that they didn't do anything, thinking that they can straighten everything out. But instead, they both get themselves into a bigger mess. Since his rebellious teenage years, Rob had returned to his original home state of West Virginia. He moved back home just months after the murders, and he had managed to get his GED, and he had held a series of low-paying jobs over the years. He had married, and he was refurbishing a log cabin along with his wife, who worked in banking. He no longer had any connection to Austin, as even his father no longer lived there. The local police department in West Virginia didn't have the necessary equipment to record interrogations, even though this is 1999, and that's ridiculous. So, the Austin investigators used a hidden camera inside a clock and an older Niagara recorder that can only record for three hours at a time. Rob's interrogation is going to last much longer than three hours, and the hidden camera will result in audio that at times can't be understood over the sound of interference and static, and the three-hour recording of the Niagara runs out way early. The recording of Rob's interrogation is a really a mess. And let's just put it this way. There will be times when investigators are basically filling in the blanks of the audio, and I'm just not comfortable taking the investigator's word on what was said. Rob had worked late the night before the police knocked on his door to take him in for questioning, and he'd only been asleep for about an hour that morning before he agreed to go into the station. I have read some accounts that imply that he might have been hungover, but I'm not sure about that. But the point is that Rob is not starting out in a good place. And Rob's interrogation is a lot shorter than Mike's. But just like Mike, Rob initially denies any involvement in the murders. And he, too, will ultimately confess to involvement. And he even goes farther when he admits that he raped one of the girls. And it's that crude statement about the rape that seals his fate. And at trial... Rob will receive the death penalty. Now, why does he confess if he wasn't guilty? 
In his own words, he thought, just confess so he can end the interrogation and get the hell out of that room. And later, he would withdraw his confession, and forensic evidence like fingerprints or DNA would clear him later. But these young guys just don't get it. Once you confess, it's almost impossible to walk that back. And this is the most important part. If you are being heavily pressured into a confession, then there very likely isn't anything that ties you to the crime, like fingerprints or DNA. So that means there are no forensics that can clear you. That's why the police need the confession so bad. They have basically nothing else. And this will be one of the few parenting tips I ever give all you. Teach your kids not to talk to cops without you or a lawyer present. Tell them that they don't have to answer the police officer's questions without you in a situation like this where a crime is being investigated. Now, don't get what I'm saying all twisted up here. Teenagers need to know to comply with an officer's orders during a traffic stop or like a stop and frisk scenario. That's different. That can be a life or death situation for, you know, rolling through a stop sign. This is different in that it's an interrogation after a crime occurred. And in a traffic stop situation, I think invoking your Fifth Amendment rights would quickly escalate the situation. And yes, the responsibility to de-escalate solely belongs to the police. But in reality, we know that very often police amp things up. So we as citizens have to use our common sense and doing what we can to keep it you know, all cool in the pool. So the takeaway is let your kids know if the police want to question them, even if they say it's just as a witness, because that's how they're going to frame it. They're not going to tell you that you're a suspect. The response needs to be, I need to talk to my parents first and then clam up. Say, I need to talk to my parents. Or if they want to say, I need to talk to a lawyer. But I would recommend saying, I need to talk to my parents and then not saying anything further. But don't just say, I need to talk to my parents first and then keep talking because that's not going to help you either. My point is here is if you have wayward teens, tell them the importance of not talking without an attorney or at least a responsible parent present. Words can be twisted. So it's important to just not talk in these situations. And if these guys had just shut up. They never would have gone to trial, never been incarcerated, never been on death row. I mean, the other two guys, Forrest and Maurice, they keep their lips together. And Forrest is never even indicted in the murders, even though evidence against him was presented to a grand jury twice. And Maurice, although he was held in jail for three years, charges were later dropped against him and he was never brought to trial either. And the important difference between Forrest and Maurice and Rob and Mike is during this final time of interrogations, only Rob and Mike talk. And they're the only ones that end up in prison. And that's important to know. And I know it seems like difficult telling your kids not to cooperate with the police, but what would you rather have? Kids that the police, you know, think are, are terrific young kids because they cooperated because they're not even going to think that half the time. Or would you rather have a kid that doesn't go to jail for something they didn't do because they got confused? Okay, so I know I just criticized the parents for not teaching their kids the importance of lawyering up because... These guys all were kids that got into trouble. So I think it's all the more important if you have a kid that you know is high risk for dealing with the police to give them that information. But even though I just criticized the parents, what I'm going to say is when Rob's wife tells Rob's stepdad that he was going in for questioning about something that happened in Austin, the stepfather springs into action. This guy is just superhero stepdad out there. He immediately knew something was up. And I think he was worried that Rob was going to dig himself in deeper. And Rob ends up on death row in Texas. So the stepdad is right. The stepdad hurries down to the police station and he asks, 
to see Rob, but the local police won't let the stepfather in to see him. The stepfather even explained that Rob isn't capable of making legal decisions on his own. But this is basically ignored. The cop tells the stepfather that Rob has been told about his rights and was read a Miranda warning and that Rob had chose to waive his rights. And that right there, that is a lie. Rob had not been Mirandized when his stepfather was trying to reach him. Now, I know I said it was a lie, and I think it was, but I could be wrong. Because perhaps the Texas police officers had told the West Virginia Police Department that he had been Mirandized, and the West Virginia was relying on bad information. But all I know is I don't know who was telling the lie. All I know is the truth was not told to Rob's stepfather. Rob had not been Mirandized at this point, And Texas admits that. that at this point in the interrogation, when Rob's stepfather was trying to get to him, he had not been Mirandized. If he's not been Mirandized, that means he has not waived his rights. So the stepfather hears this, you know, that he's waived his rights and he's freaking out. So he immediately contacts an attorney and engages him to represent Rob. Then the attorney hightails it on over to the police station. Once he's at the station, the attorney says that he wants to see his client now for the interrogation to stop immediately. And it should have. But it didn't, because that piece of shit at the front desk refuses the attorney access to his client, refuses to even let Rob know that his attorney is there at the station trying to reach him. And this just makes my blood boil. This cop knows nothing about the case, but he is willing to go out on a real limb, potentially breaching a suspect's constitutional rights on the advice of another cop. Because West Virginia police were advised by the Austin cops who were prepared for this situation. And they told the local cop to say that because Rob's family and not Rob himself had obtained the attorney, they didn't have to let him have access to his client. Now, if I was in this attorney's shoes, I would be on the phone with the DA immediately. But keep in mind, I don't know exactly what time of day this is. And this guy has no idea that the client he just got minutes ago is confessing to a quadruple murder. I don't know if this attorney even knows what Rob is being questioned about. This man, so I criticized the attorney right there for saying I would have been on the phone with the DA. I don't know if that was feasible in this situation. And I really don't think this lawyer understands right now the magnitude of what's going on. But the point the real point of this here is that Rob Springsteen has a lawyer that is desperately trying to reach him, and the police are denying this lawyer access to his client, and it shouldn't happen in this country. Now, this whole time that his lawyer is trying to reach him, it's important to note that Rob was not Mirandized, and in my opinion, Rob was in custody the moment his stepfather went to see him at the police station and he was turned away. And I'm just waiting for the Supreme Court to eventually back me up on this. But if you truly are free to leave and you are not in custody, that means then people are free to come see you and you should know that people are trying to contact you. If people can't see you, then the police have control of you and you are in custody. If the police can prohibit you from finding out that friends or family or your attorney are trying to reach you, then you are in custody. And that's important here because Rob has not been read his Miranda rights when his stepfather or his lawyer sought access to him. Personally, I think if Rob was Mirandized, it would have changed his tone. He would have finally realized this shit was serious and maybe asked for an attorney. And I think this because that is exactly what he does when he is finally Mirandized after he has confessed. 
The reason why I keep emphasizing the importance of being Mirandized in this situation is because the case the Austin police relied on to deny Rob's lawyer access to Rob was Moran v. Burbine, a 1986 Supreme Court ruling, you know, United States Supreme Court, which held that the police are not required to tell a suspect that counsel has been retained for them and that the lawyer is trying to reach them. The issue in that case really turns on who requests counsel. If it's the suspect that asks for a lawyer, then questioning stops immediately because the Fifth Amendment right to an attorney has been invoked. But if another party retains a lawyer for a suspect, that lawyer's right to access his client can be limited before the client is charged with the crime. The lawyer's access to his client doesn't come in until the Sixth Amendment applies, and the Sixth Amendment right to an attorney doesn't start until you've been charged with a crime. So that's an interesting thing to always remember is there's two ways that you're entitled to an attorney. It's under the Fifth Amendment, and that's when you're in custody and being questioned. You have a right to stop right there with your right to remain silent. You have a right to an attorney. Those are your Miranda rights. But the Sixth Amendment is when you're going to trial and you have a right to counsel. And that attaches once you've been charged. And also, once you've been charged, the Sixth Amendment, not only do you have a right of access to an attorney, your attorney has a right of access to you. So there's a little explanation there. Okay, here's what I think. I personally don't think the holding in Moran v. Burbine is controlling on Rob's situation here. Because in Moran, the suspect had been Mirandized and actively waived his rights. Here, Rob hadn't been Mirandized, so he never waived his right to an attorney. It's an important difference that needs to be cleared up, and I don't believe it has been by the courts. Basically, the Supreme Court said that if you waive your Fifth Amendment rights, you've waived them. It doesn't matter if a third party has obtained legal counsel. A person being questioned must invoke their Fifth Amendment right to counsel themselves. No one else can do it for you. So unless you personally request an attorney, it doesn't matter if you have an attorney that someone else obtained on your behalf. The suspect has to request that attorney himself. But here, Rob hadn't waived his right to an attorney. He just never invoked his right to an attorney because he had no idea that he was in custody. I mean, the police told him when he went in there to be interrogated that he wasn't in custody. So why would he assume that he was? And this is why this is important. It's because we all have constitutional rights. And I just hate when people say something's overturned on a technicality because that can happen, but it is in the vast minority of cases. Cases are not turned over on a technicality. Cases are turned over because somebody's constitutional rights were violated. And to have constitutional rights and to have them mean something, they, you know, they have to be protected in order for them to actually exist. And that's what the purpose of Miranda was for. And it, it changed things. Before, we had these rights, but people didn't know about them so much. I mean, some people did, but there's a lot of people that didn't. And also, there was no punishment largely when your rights were violated. Miranda changed that. And it was, you know, a big turning point in judicial history and criminal law. Just look at it this way. What is the right to an attorney if your attorney can be denied access to you while you're being interrogated? It's nothing but words that don't protect you at all. Personally, I don't think Rob's confession should have been admitted into evidence at his trial, but it was. And I think this was an appealable issue, but I couldn't see where it was addressed by the courts in this case. That's not to say that it wasn't. It's just saying I'm not seeing that. But I'd be really curious if anybody could point that out to me because I would have to think at trial his confession, what attempt was made to suppress it. I have to think that. And I would assume it would be based on the Moran Burbine holding being inappropriately relied upon. And it would have to have been brought up at trial or it would, you know, you're waving your right, make it an appealable issue. But let's move on from there. 
Because although Rob isn't a great success in life, he, I mean, he is employed. He's happily married. But I just feel like he's maybe, he feels like he could do more. Maybe he's a little disappointed in himself where he landed in life. When he's talking to the police, first in the interrogation room, he describes the job his dad has as an independent computer programmer, how his one uncle owns his own company, and another uncle is a high-up executive position at Kmart. And these little brags barely register with the police because I think the police are only impressed by each other. Rob is just trying to make chit-chat, and they can't even engage. Rob explains that his best friend in West Virginia is a man named Roy Rose, and Rob details how he and his wife celebrated their anniversary recently with Rob and his wife on a boat together. And just remember that name, Roy, because we're going to circle back to him later. And then this is all early part of the interrogation where Rob's just like idly trying to get chit-chat going with like the police officers really not engaging with him. Next, Rob asks how long that the interview would last because he had another job to get to. The police completely ignored this question. And basically at this point, the interrogation is underway. After a few initial questions, Rob asked if he could write out his answers because he explains that he had an intellectual disability. Rob describes himself as being specific learning disabled because his brain operates backwards from the normal way a left-right thinker does, making him think opposite and do things backwards. He said if given a series of six numbers, he would only be able to recall two numbers. Rob also mentioned that he was on the prescription medication Ritalin. The investigators appeared to ignore Rob's explanation of his learning disabilities and proceeded to jump right on into the questions about the murders at the yogurt shop. Now, Rob claims that he knows nothing about the murders and that as a teenager, he mainly kept to himself. Rob described his home life in Austin, how he didn't get along with his dad's girlfriend, that she only ever bought bread and hot dogs, which honestly, they don't even go together. It's hot dogs and hot dog buns. It's really self-explanatory. The words hot dog are in both ingredients, lady. But... (laughs) I mean, hot dogs and bread? Oh, it's just sad. That's a sad dinner. But Rob said there was never enough to eat, so he decided to move back to West Virginia. I think the girlfriend might have been upset that he's living rent-free in the other half of a condo she owns. Like, she could be getting the money for renting that out. And this guy wants hot dog buns? Ah, uh, hell no. You're in my condo rent-free. You have hot dogs and bread. And you deal. <laughs> I'm guessing. Who knows? Okay, anyway, according to Rob on the night of the murders, he went to Forrest's house. Maurice stopped by and picked up all the guys, and they went to the big mall, where they spent some time at the local arcade. Maurice had left the group for a while that night to go to his sister's home, I believe, to babysit, and Forrest had gone with Maurice. Now, during this time, Rob and Mike Scott sat outside and watched the Hooters waitresses arrive for work. Classy. Then Maurice returned driving really fast in the parking lot, claiming that some Mexicans had been throwing something at his car, and then the group of guys all jumped in the car and went looking for the Mexicans without ever finding them. Okay. Do you think anybody was ever actually throwing anything at his car? Anyway, so they try to track down these unfindable Mexicans, and then Rob and Mike returned to the mall around 8, and the pair played video games till around midnight. Maurice never returned to the mall, so Mike and Rob walked to a midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but only Rob went into the movie as Mike was unable to sneak in. After the movie, Rob went to Mike's house around 1.30. The guys got a ride to Mike's house with some guy they didn't really seem to know. Before going to sleep, they watched the Robin Hood movie with Kevin Costner. Rob even told the officers that he had no knowledge of the murders until he was brought in for questioning after Maurice was picked up at the mall, you know, with that gun a little over a week after the killings. This, I think, might not be entirely accurate because the four guys did read about the murders in the paper on, I think, Sunday morning, two days after the murders. But maybe he's just trying to say, 
I didn't know any specifics really about the murders until you guys questioned me. Or, you know, I only knew what I read in the paper. I don't know. That, that to me, is a little, little fudgy on what he's saying there. But this story about going to the Rocky Horror movie is the same story that he had told at that first interrogation back in 1991. And he recalled that he had went to that late night movie on most weekends. Rob is confronted by the police with the fact that they have statements from five or six people that Rob was with the other boys for the whole evening, not just a couple of hours, like Rob alleged. The police right now are lying. They don't have those statements. They can lie to you. Don't believe what they say. The detective then doubled down and asked if Rob would be surprised if he was told that the Rocky Horror Picture Show wasn't even showing in that theater on the night of the murders. Yes, he would be surprised by that, said Rob. Rob was a little shaken at this point, and this is a turning point in the interrogation. But that little comment about the Rocky Horror Picture Show not showing that night was kind of a lie. Because there was a witness that I recall reading about who saw the lights on in the yogurt shop unusually late on the night of the murders as she was hurrying to get to the late showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So right there, I think we know that it was showing. But the officer used carefully crafted language when he spoke to Rob. He asked, would Rob be surprised if he was told that the movie wasn't showing that night? See, that tricky bastard did not right say that the movie wasn't playing. He just implied that it might not have been. I don't think the officers had even confirmed whether or not that movie was playing that night, which is something they should do because that's part of this man's alibi. And he's been giving this alibi for eight years at this point. Now, it seems like that's a blatant lie by the police about the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which you just always got to remember the police can lie to you about evidence and fact. It was at this point that Rob weakens, and he seems less confident in his recall of that night. Now, Rob does blame any inconsistencies between his two statements to the police on his drug use. He even mentioned that he followed the Grateful Dead, oh, for nine months during his youth. Jealous. Uh, though I really couldn't live that lifestyle. But I wish I was the kind of person that could. And honestly, years had passed between the interrogations. To You know, for them to be completely identical would be abnormal, in my opinion. But what he's saying is very consistent with his first interrogation. So there isn't really much difference here. And you just have to remember, to Rob, that Friday was just like any other Friday. It was not that memorable. A lot of his Fridays were probably very similar. And this would be same for me when I was in high school. If it was fall... I'll tell you what I was doing on a Friday night. I was cheering for our football team. I don't remember what I did after that. Sometimes I'd go to a restaurant after that. Sometimes we just go straight home. Sometimes I'd go to somebody's house. All the things I'd be able to remember was if there was a football game for my high school going on, that's where I was. Other than that, it's just Friday in high school. But like I've said a million times on this already, if he had participated in the murder of four teenagers that night, I think he'd remember that Friday. And I think what he, I'm not saying, oh, he'd be saying, I killed those girls that night. He would have crafted an alibi that would be, he'd be able to stick to and he would know it. He wouldn't be just trying to have a hazy recall. And they do have a better recall this night, really, these guys, than they would normally because, like I said repeatedly, sorry, that these guys had all been questioned eight days after the murders. If it hadn't been for Maurice being caught with that gun in the mall, I don't think these guys would have been able to recall that night these girls died at all. But they are a little bit based on the fact that Maurice was questioned. But I'm not saying that was a good thing that Maurice was questioned because if Maurice hadn't been caught with that gun in the mall, none of this shit would have rained down on these four guys. Now, initially, Rob consistently denied any involvement in the murders, although he does say that he has no idea what Forrest and Maurice were doing after they dropped him and Mike off at the mall the last time. But Rob was really shaken by the comment about 
the Rocky Horror Picture Show not playing that night. And once he starts to think that he didn't actually go to that movie that night, things slowly start to fall apart for Rob. When he was asked why he bought a newspaper the day after the murders, the police asked, why would a 16-year-old buy a paper? Rob responded, why would an 8-year-old buy a gun and kill somebody? The strangest things happen all the time. And I mean, I kind of agree with Rob here. But I'll tell you what, like, why would a 16-year-old buy a paper? I read the paper all the time when I was 16. In fact, when I was 16, I was a paper girl. So I always read the Sunday paper. But anyway, little by little, Rob is beginning to understand the magnitude of what was happening. And he said, if I am being accused of something, then I would like a lawyer present. I would like this to come to an end. But he doesn't get a lawyer and the interrogation doesn't end. Even though, like I told you, there's a lawyer desperately trying to get to him. But in my opinion, Rob was in custody at this point. And right there, he asked for this to come to an end. That's his way of asking to leave while still seeming cool. Because I think that's who Rob is. He doesn't want to say stuff like he's panicking right now. He wants an attorney. He wants to get out of there. He still wants to seem like he's okay and in control of things. But right there, when he's saying for this to come to an end, and he would like a lawyer present if he's being accused, right there. That's Rob attempting to invoke his Fifth Amendment rights to silence and to a lawyer, but he is ignored. And he's trying to evoke those rights without ever having been Mirandized. So just the idea that this man had waived his rights to an attorney is ridiculous because right there he's saying, if I'm being accused, I want a lawyer. He's not waiving his right to a lawyer. But a detective tells Rob that he was free to leave at any time, and he should have. Rob should have, but Rob stayed. The police are being a little underhanded here because when they're saying he's free to leave, I think what they are saying is that he is not under arrest. But that does not necessarily mean he's not in custody. I think we're splitting hairs at this point. But Rob stays. That's Rob's decision. And his request for a lawyer was completely ignored, even though that lawyer is right out there trying to do everything he can to get to him. In my opinion, Rob's constitutional rights were stomped on in that interrogation room. But I have a very broad view of the rights of the accused, so you may disagree with me. As the courts did, Rob's interrogation and confession will be admitted at his trial, so clearly the court felt this behavior of the cops was acceptable. It's just that I personally, I don't. The cops lie to Rob, telling him that both Mike and Maurice have been talking to the police. Now remember, only Mike has talked, and that Maurice has not been questioned in years. The police say that all three of the other guys are telling the same version of that night, and that the story that Rob told them doesn't match what the other guys have been saying about that evening. Now, almost immediately after stating that the stories of the other three guys all match up, the police contradict themselves, saying they believe Mike's story and not Maurice's. Now, Rob doesn't notice this, but if all three had told the same story, how the hell could the police believe one person more than someone else? I mean, I thought it was all the same story. The police ask Rob who called the shot, and Rob's dissent begins when he responds, Maurice. Now, I don't know if Rob, when he's answering this, is thinking who called the shots in their friendship group or who called the shots on the night when the girls were killed. Like, who was the ringleader? I don't know if Rob understands where this question exactly is going. But Rob still says at this point that he was never in that yogurt shop. And he says he wishes they could give him a lie detector test. But the detectives don't bite. Instead, they say that the others have said, Rob was with the whole group that entire night, and they asked if he had ever owned a gun. Rob said that he hadn't. The police say that they thought Rob knew more than what he was saying. I'd like to point out that both Mike and Rob, both of them requested a lie detector. And this is what really bothers me in this, is 
I don't know if this was a questioning tactic by the police. They didn't want to interrupt the flow of questioning because clearly both times they were breaking the guys down and moving closer to what they wanted. Or were the police actually very fearful that both of these guys would pass a lie detector test? And although they're not admissible in court, and when you pass them, they really don't help you that much, but it definitely wouldn't have helped the police's case if all they got are confessions, no physical evidence, and the guys passed a lie detector test saying they weren't involved in the murders. I just, in the back of my mind, I wonder if the police were like, don't let them take a lie detector test because there's a chance they didn't do this crime and they're going to pass the test. That bothers me. Now, Rob states that if he had been there for the murders, he would, quote, be a pretty fucked up person and that he wouldn't be able to hold a job or have a wife. The police like a bunch of assholes, immediately grab onto this one with one officer noting that Rob had seven jobs in the last five years, while the officer had one job in the last 20. Well, good for you, shithead. You found your ideal position in life, living on a power trip, taking advantage of those with learning disabilities, and getting innocent people sent to death row. I mean, hooray. Ugh. The officer then proceeds to mock Rob's current job as a stalker at Kroger's. I guess this turd hates eating food because someone needs to put that shit on the shelves so he can hork it down later. I just hate when people shit on other people's jobs. It's elitist and bitchy. My mother always said, if it's honest work, then it's good work. But I had a terrific mom and maybe this guy didn't. This officer is wrong. He isn't better than Rob. In my opinion, he's a hell of a lot worse. And that just gets under my skin. Anyway, I mean, that's, that's like a rock in my shoe. I, I hate it. Anyway, back to the interrogation. When the police tell him that they have a witness who saw him in the yogurt shop the day of the murders, Rob responds, I don't eat yogurt to tell you the truth. I mean, it would be comical if it wasn't such a tragic story. And they have no witness that is putting Rob in the yogurt shop on the day of the murders. That's another lie. Then Rob comes out with, you both seem like real nice knockout guys and have been really friendly and kind. And I'm not sure what he based that on because unlike with Mike, they seem to be really going after Rob from the get-go. And it's either Rob really can't read the room, poor bastard, or he's just trying to butter them up with niceties. It could be either one, but it should be it's just like, oh, these are not friendly and kind people. Well, after this compliment he gives them, the police tell him that he's not a good liar. And Rob says, that's why I don't lie. The cops retort, you are now. Rob, seeming defiant, but a little defeated, said, if you believe so. The officer brags that he is going to sleep well that night because he doesn't hear the screams of the girls. Well, Rob says that he doesn't hear the screams of the girls either. Asked if he shot those girls, Rob says that he didn't and that he can't take responsibility for something he didn't do. Rob asks the detectives to tell him what his options are. But of course, this request is ignored. The detectives begin talking in hypotheticals and possibilities. And this is part of the read method. They twist these statements about what could have happened into what actually did happen. An officer asked, is it possible you killed those girls? And Rob, I don't know what his deal is here. He's combative at times in a way that's not helpful to him. Because Rob responds, I guess it's possible. Anything's possible. Now, once Rob admits that it is possible that he killed the girls, the cops hit him exactly where they wanted him to be. He is then asked, is it possible that you were present there while this took place? And Rob said no. The police pounce with, you just told me anything's possible. And Rob broke. It is possible, he says. 
the detectives steer him into admitting that maybe he didn't go to the movie that night, even though he clearly remembered it at the start of the interrogation. Despite consistently saying he was never in the yogurt shop, the detectives use the concept of anything is possible to get Rob to admit that it is possible that he killed the girls. Despite consistently saying he was never in the yogurt shop, the detectives use the concept of anything is possible to get Rob to admit that it is possible that he killed the girls. Rob has gone as far as he can go and again ask what his options are and again he is ignored. I know these guys were all like misfits and you know it's difficult because the four murdered girls are just the best of the best. Those are people that you'll want them to live and thrive and have long lives for so many reasons, not just because they deserve it, but also because they would make the world a better place. The world with those four girls would be better today if they were still in it. And these four guys, they did not contribute to the world the way I think those four little girls would have. That doesn't mean these guys aren't worthwhile. It doesn't mean these are throwaway people. It's just, it's hard for people when they see those four girls compared to these four boys. And it doesn't mean that those four boys don't need justice. And it surely doesn't mean that punishing the wrong people brings any justice for those four girls' death. Rob sat silent for several minutes. And when he spoke, he said he was not really remembering anything, that he had only little fragments that he was trying to piece together. The police said Rob was as much a victim as anybody else, which is a classic cop move to get confessions while painting the accused as a victim. And this falls in along the lines of the Reed method. This is when the cops change their tactics and start to put a little fake kindness into the questioning. The tide had turned. Rob was trying to remember the murders, even while moments ago he had completely denied any involvement and had denied ever having been in the yogurt shop. But now he was searching in his mind, trying to recall a murder that he had no first-hand knowledge of. The police tell Rob that Maurice has placed the blame on him, which, of course, was a lie. Maurice never implicated Rob in the murders, but the police say that they don't believe Maurice. They need Rob to tell his story, that they think Rob had no idea that anything violent was going to happen at the yogurt shop that night. And Rob bites, saying, I think I got the hell out of there for the first time. The first time in his interrogation right there, Rob admitted to being in the yogurt shop on the night of the murders. The police had succeeded. Rob was confessing. Rob said that he, quote, got in the car, parked, got out of the car, went inside, went to the bathroom, came back out. Maurice is at the counter. I was walking out. I mean, I was like headed out of the shop. Anyway, out the door, heard somebody scream, turned around, and all hell just broke loose. Maurice is standing there with a gun in his hand. He said, give me the fucking money or I'll fucking kill all of you or some dumbass shit like that. I said, man, this shit is getting fucking deep or I'm fucking out of here or I don't want anything to do with this shit. Rob wasn't quite sure. And Rob didn't know where Forrest and Mike were at this point. But he recalled that Maurice was at the counter. Rob said that he was like, I don't fucking believe this. I don't want to be part of this. I went and left out of the store. The police opened a door and Rob walked through it. They opened a, you were there, but you didn't want any of this shit to happen. And Rob decided to go along with that. And this is what's important to note. I think this whole time Rob knows he was not there. I really truly think that. But I think he sees an out where he's got less involvement. And he thinks if he's saying, oh, yeah, I was there when Maurice pulled the gun and all this stuff started happening. But I was like, I'm against this. But it doesn't really matter at this point in the crime 
it's felony murder at this point. So once the felony starts being committed, all the other shit that flows from it, it's basically you're going to be go down for everything. And while Rob right now, in his confession right now, he's saying that he walks out or he's leaving. That's not his story that he sticks to. But I just want to say that's how the police get him to initially confess is find a way for him to have less culpability, less involvement in the crime and get him to start talking about that. Because you can see how he admits to being at the scene during the crime. But he has distanced himself from the violence that took place there. And this falls in line with how the police referred to Rob as a victim earlier. It's easier to get people to confess if you convince them that they are less culpable than the other participants in the crime. It's as if they think if they are less guilty than the other criminals, they won't be convicted of anything. And that's just not the case. But these false confessors generally seem to think that the police are trying to help them, but they are not. The police are there for one reason, to get a confession. And your lawyer is the only person that is there to help you. Rob said he went outside and stood by the car. He heard gunshots, maybe five. And according to Rob, it was Maurice shooting. Mike and Forrest followed Rob out, which is weird because at this point, he doesn't even know where Mike and Forrest are, but he knows they followed him out. Rob said that Maurice claimed he had just scared the girls. Guys, they left the crime scene and they threw the gun off of a bridge and into a stream near the shop. The police asked if Mike got out of the car, and Rob said he did. When he was asked what Mike did, Rob said he thought he threw up and that he thought he threw up too. And this is an interesting thing because Mike also said that he threw up over a bridge. I mean, it's weird because Rob doesn't even remember if he threw up. He thinks he threw up too. It's just weird. But they both have a memory of throwing up over a bridge, and I would be really curious to see exactly how the police asked that and directed that part of the conversation. I'm just suspicious that it might have been kind of steered a certain way. Rob claims that they drove back to the shop and saw all the police and ambulances. Note that he didn't mention fire truck, and those were immediately at the scene. After the first police officer called in that he had seen smoke coming out of that strip mall, as the police officer calls it in, fire trucks arrive, and that is long before any ambulances respond to the scene. So there was never a time that night where there's ambulances there and no fire truck because they didn't realize that there were people in the yogurt shop, that there were victims in there until the fire department had started going through the crime scene. Rob then thanks the detective and said that that really helped him get past that. And I seriously wonder right now if Rob's sitting there, if he thought he wouldn't be charged with a crime, that maybe they would just use him to testify against Maurice. Rob said he felt kind of bad, and an officer responded that he felt bad because he had been involved in something that was terrible. Rob again tries to diminish his role, saying that he really wasn't, and he didn't ask for that, and that he didn't want that. At this point, they take a break from questioning. When the interview resumed, Rob was able to outline more of the details of the crime. He said that he knew that he was in the yogurt shop and that he felt like he was losing reality. Rob painted Maurice as the leader and that the scene, he described it as chaos. Okay, the cops asked if after he exited the bathroom, did he see a door? And at this point, Rob says he saw the back door and Rob explained how he had propped the door open with an empty pack of cigarettes earlier in the night so that they could gain access to the shop. But recall how he had earlier in his confession, stated that they had entered through the front door. So that's confusing. His confession has them entering through the front door. Later in his confession has him having been in the shop earlier that night where he propped open the back door so they could get in. It's just very confusing. And forensic-wise, this is very important because Rob confessed to using the restroom at the yogurt shop. But the forensic team never dusted for prints in the bathroom or on the bathroom door or its handles because the forensic team, there were a lot of people 
for this being a major crime with four young kids murdered in such a brutal way. Some people really just did not seem to take this seriously. And it's really sad because I think if they would have fingerprinted in there and not found any of Rob's fingerprints, that would have really helped his defense. And he probably, I mean, maybe he could have been acquitted and that wouldn't have ended the investigation. So when this person didn't do their job on, on recovering evidence, didn't fingerprint the bathroom, the door handles, they hurt not only these defendants, because the evidence wasn't there that could have helped clear them or could have cast doubt on their confessions, but the evidence isn't there to pinpoint other people's fingerprints, other people that could have been in there. It's bad. This crime scene was not handled in the best way. So after he propped open the door, Rob said that he sat outside the movie theater for about 45 minutes to an hour, and then they returned to the yogurt shop. He is saying he propped the door open around 10. Keep that in mind as we go back to witnesses who were in the shop around 10 that night, because no witness can identify any of the four accused men, Maurice, Forrest, Rob, Mike. At 10 o'clock, no one that was in that shop that night, anywhere around that time, none of those witnesses can identify any of the four accused as having been seen in the shop that night. Now, at this point, Rob changes his story. Before, you know, he was out basically at the car when the shots were fired. He hadn't seen any shots being fired, only heard them as he was fleeing the shop. Now, he says he saw a girl be shot. Seconds after saying he couldn't remember if Forrest went inside, he said he saw Maurice and Forrest trying to get the clothes off one of the girls. Now, we know that the girls most likely probably undressed themselves because of how neatly their clothes were folded and stacked. I mean, they were probably forced to undress at gunpoint, but the girls did it themselves under duress. Now, according to Rob, Maurice told Rob to fuck the girl, but Rob said no. Maurice asked him to hold down a girl so he could rape her. When he was asked, what did they make you do? Rob replied, shoot her? All along, up until this point in the interrogation, it has been Maurice who did all of the shooting, according to Rob. But now Rob admits to shooting a girl. The detectives know that rape was involved in the assaults that night, and they want to get Rob to admit to a sexual assault. But Rob doesn't seem to understand what the detectives are looking for. I think when the interrogator is asking, what did they make you do? I think they're looking for some statement about sexual assault on Rob's part. But he's confused, so he says, shoot her, even though he has consistently said that Maurice did all the shooting. So when the detective makes this more direct statement, you fucking know if you fucking raped her. Just say it. Rob said, I stuck my dick in her pussy and I raped her. He said, Maurice then shot her again in the head. Now this is important because it shot again in the head. And there's only one person at the crime scene, Amy Ayers, the youngest one, 13-year-old Amy, they've been shot twice. So we have Rob Springsteen right there confessing to raping little Amy Ayers. Now the rape kit on Amy had been negative. But those words would lead to Rob's conviction more than any other evidence at the trial. And even though, this is interesting, because science changed so much so quickly in the years between Rob's confession, his trial, and then when they, he's ultimately released, science has changed because it went from Amy's rape kit was negative to there's definite DNA that they have of someone sexually assaulting Amy. And that's what's going to lead to Rob's release from prison is it's not his DNA. But at this point, they don't even know that they have DNA there, really. The cops get Rob to lay his head on his arms to replicate the way Amy was found on the floor in the back room. At the trial, the cops would falsely claim that it was an exact reenactment. And honestly, this is really disturbing to me because they're not 100% sure that Amy was dead when the um when the killers left the scene. There is a chance that Amy moved after the killers fled because Amy's blood is found in multiple places along the crime scene. Now, we don't know if the killers were still there when she was moving 
or if she managed to move after they left. But my only point here is I, we don't even know if the real killers, if they would have seen the way that Amy ended up lying on that floor. They might have already been gone. But the police, they're getting exactly what they want from Rob. When one officer decides to issue Rob the Miranda warning. Now, I think he should have been given that warning way earlier because they lied and said he'd been given the Miranda warning. They lied to his stepfather hours ago, you know, lied to his lawyer. When his lawyer was prohibited from seeing him and when his stepfather was denied access to Rob. All those are times when I think he should have already been Mirandized. But the other investigators in the room think that the warning was given too early. And on a purely investigation standpoint, not a constitutional rights standpoint, they are correct because Rob immediately shuts up, saying that he needs to talk to his wife. He is asked if he is invoking his right to an attorney. Rob replies, yes, sir. The detective answers, get out. Rob begins to pick up his wrappers and garbage and rather poignantly says, just trying to clean up my mess. Rob will spend years trying to clean up the mess he made in that interrogation room. Rob's given a ride home by the other officers. The police never got him to give the specifics of the fire, so he's never questioned on whether an accelerant was used. And that's important, because there's conflicting evidence about that. And when Rob's asked, like, after all of this, when he's out of prison, off death row, why would he confess to a crime that he didn't commit? Rob's response is that he thought he would be cleared by forensics, fingerprints, or DNA. He confessed just to get out of that room, to end the questioning. Questioning that he could have ended at any time by just shutting up, by leaving. He had been told by the police officers that he was free to leave. He didn't need to confess to end the interrogation. He just needed to stop talking and exit the room. But the police had such a power over him that he felt he had to stay regardless of their words saying he didn't have to. He thought his best avenue would be just to answer these questions. And it's an unusual way of looking at the situation. It truly is. He just wanted to get out of that police station and get out of that room. And it's a truly, truly frightening thought because something like this doesn't just happen once. Mike and Rob aren't the only people to falsely confess to a crime, thinking it would all be cleared up with lie detector results. You know, when you pass a lie detector, the police just dismiss the results. I mean, the police only believe polygraph results when they support their theory, you know, this, the suspect is guilty. And Rob would actually pass a polygraph before he was extradited back to Texas. But at that point, it's not going to help him at all. And like I said, at this point in time, there are no forensics at the scene that can implicate Rob. There also are no forensics at the scene that can exonerate Rob. And that's why they're pushing for the confession. And that's why I just want people to realize that when people are going so hard for a confession, it's because that's all they have. They need that confession. There's just science to back up the suspect's guilt. While the investigators are trying to tie up loose ends in the case, you know, contradictions in the confessions and contradictions between the confessions and the actual crime, the police meet with Maurice in his lawyer's office. And, oh, yeah, Maurice, dumbass that he is, he knows that we meet in my lawyer's office. Here's a little foreshadowing, because the one that really never talks to the police, Forrest, he's never indicted by a grand jury, even though they tried twice. Charges are presented against him before a grand jury two times. So he never gets indicted. He never goes past grand jury phase. And Maurice, who quickly got a lawyer when the shit got serious, he is arrested and he does spend three years in jail and he, he is indicted. But charges are eventually dropped against Maurice. It's Mike and Rob that thought the cops were their friends, or that maybe they could outwit the cops. They get a life sentence and the death penalty. Moral of the story is, shut up and lawyer up. And honestly, I know I keep emphasizing that, and most people probably could talk 
to the police without ensnarling themselves in a murder investigation, most of my listeners would be okay. But it's those that don't deal well with authority or confrontation, or perhaps have maybe a little too much confidence in their abilities that's misplaced, or people that are easily persuaded that really succumb to this bullshit interrogation technique. Anyway, at his lawyer's office, Maurice continued to deny any involvement in the murders, even when he was told that he was going to be arrested shortly, and this was his last chance to confess and establish that he was not the ringleader of the group, as the other boys had claimed. A last-ditch effort was made to get Forrest to talk. He was shown parts of Mike's statement and told that Rob had also confessed. But Forrest stayed strong and stayed quiet, giving the police nothing to use. Finally, the police pull out the last stop, and they drive Forrest to the yogurt shop, where they already have Mike Scott lying in wait. His opening line when he sees Forrest is, Hey, Forrest, remember me? I'm Mike Scott. I told the police everything. A surprised Forrest replied that he didn't know what the fuck Mike was talking about, or why Mike would have signed that statement. This has to be confusing for the two guys that didn't confess, right? Why the hell are their friends falsely confessing to murder and drawing them into this mess? I mean, it's a literal, actual Kafka-esque nightmare. Mike is taken home by the police, but the police, they just can't stop with Forrest. The police take Forrest to the police station and start a verbal tirade where they describe the screams and last moments of the girls' lives. Dramatically going on and on, Forrest responded, I don't believe that I was there. The cop yelled that no matter what Forrest said, he was going to be arrested. Forrest, as cool as a cucumber, said if that was the case, he wanted to leave, and Forrest was shown the door. And this is where I'm going to leave you this week. The Texas police have obtained two confessions to the murders of the four girls in the yogurt shop. But the other two suspects, they're not talking, and they're not confessing, and they claim they had nothing to do with those murders, and they have no idea why their two friends confessed. 